Well, we have a series that is focused on the images of God in the book of Psalms. That is, these word pictures that are given to us in the poetical books. Last week we noticed from Psalm 84 that our God is a sun and our God is a shield. We know that literally he's not a sun or shield, but metaphorically, as we would think in terms of poetry, what a sun does, in some sense, God does. He's the light giver. He's the one who issues forth life, generates life. He cannot be ignored. He dominates the world. And on and on we could go with comparisons. But he's also a shield. We mentioned that sometimes a king had a shield by way of authority. But primarily the shield used multiple times in the book of Psalms refers to the protection that God gives to us. He is our shield. And that goes along with those other word pictures of fortress and refuge. Our God protects us. Now today's image from the book of Psalms is an interesting one. Our God is a worm. That's right, a worm. You say, boy, that doesn't sound very exciting. We're kind of embarrassed with the word worm. No one wants to be called a worm. A worm is something that's rather useless. It doesn't appear to have any intentionality or will to it. I mean, other than to get back into the ground. And if the ground's too wet, to come out of it. We put worms on hooks. We step on worms. They're useless. God calls himself a worm? We don't like to call ourselves worms when we're singing hymns. There's a great hymn that we sing connected with the communion service. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? But some of you don't know the, worm, the word worm because the hymn books have changed it. Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as as I. Why did you put that in there? Because people don't want to be called worms. My problem with that is Jesus calls himself a worm. You say, where? Psalm 22. Let's open up Psalm 22 this morning. And because this is the Psalm of the Cross, it fits in very well with a communion service. We mentioned last week that the introduction to a psalm, whether it's musical or historical, is part of the inspired text. So in verse 0, we read these words, for the director of music to the tune of the doe of the morning. Now that may be a difficult thing to understand. In fact, there is a debate as to its actual meaning. Does it talk about an actual tune and how it is to be played? Or is it the given the name, a tune is given the name because of the occasion? One Bible scholar says that this appears to be the tune of the deer, the doe of the morning, because the doe is the animal persecuted to death. Think of the deer on the first day of hunting season. And so this appears to be then a tune that went along with someone who seemed to be persecuted even to the point of certain death. 
I don't know whether someone came up with that understanding because they read the rest of the psalm, but that fits. It's a psalm of David, which means in some way David experienced some of these things. He wrote it as he experienced these things. But we have to remember that in the book of Psalms, people like David also act as prophets, not just poets. And sometimes they write things that they don't even know will be fulfilled in a different way. The reason we know this to be true is because of the word of God. When Peter was preaching right after Pentecost, he wanted to give a message out of Psalm 19 about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that his body wouldn't decay in the grave. And so he quotes Psalm 19 and uses those words. Listen to what Peter says. Brothers, I tell you confidently that David wasn't talking about himself, David the patriarch, because he died, he's buried, and I can show you his tomb today. But he was a prophet, and David knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. So seeing what was ahead, sometimes the prophets saw. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that his body would not be abandoned in the grave, and therefore he said, nor would he see decay. Psalm 19 is about Jesus. And you and I might have totally missed it were it not for Peter's sermon. But this particular psalm, it's hard to miss. The connection with Jesus. Remember when Jesus was, this is right after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus and he met two disciples and they didn't realize it was Jesus. And finally he disclosed himself to them and they were all excited. And they went to Jerusalem where the other disciples were and they weren't yet convinced and Jesus appears. And he says, don't you understand what the scriptures have said? Everything must be fulfilled which was spoken in the law of Moses and by the prophets and in the book of Psalms concerning me. Then he opened up their minds so that they could understand the scriptures and he immediately talked about how Messiah must suffer. I think he probably used Psalm 22 because it's one of the greatest messianic psalms in all the Bible. While David might have experienced some of these things recorded, he did not experience all of these things and he indeed was speaking about Jesus. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he owned this psalm. In fact, some people believe that Jesus didn't quote parts of the psalm. He quoted the whole psalm on the cross, all 31 verses. We don't have time to go into it in detail, but I want us to get kind of a bird's eye view and notice that this psalm falls into two major sections. The first section is a prayer in the midst of suffering. And because it refers to Jesus, it talks about the Savior rejected. He describes his suffering from three different perspectives. And the first part of his suffering is the fact that he is forsaken. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ever heard that before? We know that because we read the Gospels, like Matthew 27. And these are the words of Jesus on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? 
So far from my cries of groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. I cry by night, and I'm not silent. Now David had situations where he was hunted like a deer. Saul was pursuing him. And I'm sure David had an experience where he cried out and said, Lord, it seems like you've abandoned me, that I've been deserted by you, that I'm all alone. By the way, we Christians have promises in the word of God that Jesus will never abandon us. Did you know that? Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you can boldly say the Lord is always my helper. I'll not fear what man will do to me. Or Matthew 28, Jesus said, go make disciples and I will be with you till the end of the age. We have the promise of his continual presence. He'll never forsake us. But Jesus said God the Father turned his back on him. I'm not surprised that the disciples fled from Jesus. I'm even not too shocked that Judas betrayed Jesus. I'm dumbfounded that the Father turned his back on the Son. When Jesus told the disciples that they were all going to flee, he said, but my Father will be with me, John chapter 16. And the Father was with Christ, but for a moment on the cross, the Trinity was broken. Why? First reason is God is holy. Look at verse 3. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. God is holy, and he cannot look upon sin with favor. When we sin, it breaks our fellowship with God. Jesus was sinless. He never sinned, but on the cross, he took all of our sin upon himself. The Bible tells us the one who was sinless became sin for us. And in that moment of time, the Holy One turned away from the sin offering his son, and there was a break in the Trinity. This is the greatest suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. It's not the physical pain, it's the spiritual agony of being deserted by the Father. Now, when you and I feel deserted by God, we need to remember, first of all, he'll never forsake us. And we need to remember, secondly, to embrace the psalm and make it our own. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Yes, this was predicted of him, but he made it his own. And he cried out, why have you forsaken me? I pray and there's no answer. Verse 2 might be suggestive of the darkened light that took place on the cross. I cry out in the day, you don't answer. I, I'm not silent in the night. You know, on the cross, before Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? There was supernatural darkness across the land. God is holy. We go on, verse 4. In the past, our fathers put their trust in you, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and you saved them. In you they trusted, and they weren't disappointed. But here I am, deserted. By the way, let me encourage you to learn how to pray with a biblical complaint. <laughs> take the promises of God and take them to the Father and say, hey, how come this isn't happening to me? 
It's faith that says, this is the word of God, you are holy. It's faith that says, in the past, you helped the people of faith. Come to my aid. There's not doubt in that, but there's confusion. There's question. That's the way Habakkuk prayed. And that's even the way Jesus prayed. So there's this idea of being forsaken. Secondly, the suffering of Christ came from evil people. He was despised and taunted and mocked. Look at verse 6. Here's where he says, I am a worm and no man. This reminds me of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There was no beauty in him that we should desire him. He was a worm. He was the lowest of humanity, not even that, the lowest of the animal kingdom. He's a worm. And they scorned him, verse 6. They despised him, verse 7. They mocked him, hurling insults and shaking their heads, saying, have you ever heard this before? He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him so much. That's exactly what the high priest said. Read it in Matthew 27. This is predictive. If Jesus read the Old Testament and said, I'll, I'll fulfill it by quoting it, certainly the high priest didn't read Psalm 22 and said, let's fulfill this scripture and ridicule Messiah. Predicted long before it ever happened. Jesus was crucified in a very public place, and as people walked into the city, they mocked him. They joined with others in hurling insults and sarcasm. Verse 9 through 11, Jesus says, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me and trusted in me. And, and put, uh, you made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Don't be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. That's the petition of the Savior. Now, if Jesus is a worm... Those who ridicule him are described in verse 12 as bulls, the bulls of Bashan. They encircle me. They surround me. Verse 13, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouth wide against me. Isn't that the way accusers are often? They appear like animals wanting to tear you apart. And then you've got the dogs in verse 16 that surround us. And with Hebrew parallelism, they are defined as a band of evil men. So we're not talking about literal animals here, but we're talking about people who are acting like animals. They viewed Jesus like a worm, and they acted like animals. By the way, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You and I have enemies. Jesus had enemies. They were reveling in his pain. Someone has called these animals the devil's zoo. <laughs> and each one of us, when we seek to walk with God, have those who will oppose us and taunt us, use sarcasm, despise us. But remember this, you're in good company, for so went the Savior who was despised and rejected of men. 
And then the last way he suffered was through death, crucifixion. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Does that sound like something that happened to Christ? All out of joint, but none of them broken. That was the prediction of another psalm, and it's quoted in John 19. What happened to Jesus fulfills the scripture. None of his bones were broken. You see, being crucified, you would have your joints, uh, your bones literally pulled and wrenched out of place. And there might be a little platform, often was, under the feet, the feet that were pierced. And for a moment, you could push up on the platform just to get air, to fill your lungs, and then sink down again. And people died because of suffocation. The soldiers would come by, and if they were hanging too long on the cross, some hung there for days. They would break the legs so that the people couldn't breathe. They came to Jesus, didn't break his legs because he was already dead. To fulfill the scripture. Bones out of joint, none of his bones broken. But his heart had turned to wax, and it melted within him. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Jesus said on the cross, I thirst. They lay me in the dust of death. Jesus actually died. The prince of life was killed. The creator of all, giving life to all, had his own life taken. Actually, he gave it up. They lay me in the dust of death. He was buried. Dogs surround me and evil men encircle me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. So predictive. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was popular, before the Romans came into control. You see, the Jews did not kill people by crucifixion. They would use stoning, hanging. It was the Medes and the Persians who invented the practice, and it was later adopted by the Romans and became popular. But it wasn't the normal way for someone to die. David didn't experience this, but he looked ahead to the greater David, to his greater son, to Messiah, and he said, they pierced my hands and my feet so that the scripture could be fulfilled. The Bible tells us when Jesus showed up after the resurrection, the disciples were shocked. And to convince them that he was the real deal, he showed them his hands and his feet, the wounds, the marks, the prints. Thomas wasn't there for Sunday night service, by the way. It's a good reason to be at Sunday night service. Jesus might show up. Thomas wasn't there. And so later in the week... They told him about it. He said, I won't believe until I see. So next Sunday night, he was there, and Jesus shows up again, and Thomas touches the prince and says, Behold, my God, my Savior, my God. It's by the prince that Jesus will be known when he comes again. For we read in Zechariah, they'll see him whom they have pierced. And they will recognize he was wounded in the house of his brethren. And great shame will come on the nation of Israel for rejecting their Messiah. It's the piercing that we remember of the cross, of the horrible death of crucifixion, and that becomes the mark, the identifying symbol and mark of the one who gave his life. 
Verse 17, they, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. Look at verse 18. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. The soldiers didn't say, hey, let's fulfill Psalm 22. But they did. It was customary for soldiers to divide the possessions of the criminal who was dying. And uh, there were four of them and they probably took different pieces of clothing or whatever, maybe if there was a staff, whatever it might have been. But the tunic had some value to it because it was seamless. And so to, instead of ripping it up and sharing it, they cast lots for his garments and fulfilled the word of God hundreds of years before it ever happened. Here is a wonderful evidence for the reliability of Holy Scripture. Predictive prophecy later fulfilled to the T hundreds of years after it was given. So he prays again in verse 19 like he did in verse 11. Don't be far off, O Lord. O my strength, come quickly to help. Deliver my life from the sword, although he did get the sword in the side. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And now he mentions the devil's zoo only in reverse order. And we have the horrible suffering of our Savior on the cross when he became sin for us. This is Good Friday. But now we turn to Sunday. The neat thing about this psalm is that it doesn't end just with the weeping and the sobbing and the suffering. There's victory in it. And it all changes in verse 22. Now we have praise and triumph. There's a note of victory. The Savior who was rejected in the first part of the psalm now rules. And everybody praises him. In fact, he praises himself. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. That's what Jesus said. You say, well, you're saying that because David's predicting what Messiah might say. No, I'm saying that because Hebrews 2 says that's what Jesus said. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, quotes Psalm 22, 22. It mentions the fact that it's fitting for him from whom all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's appropriate to achieve salvation to have God himself suffer. Both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are one. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. For he said, verse 12, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the church. I will sing praise to you. And Hebrews 2 says, Psalm 22, verse 22, is Jesus singing over us. Did you ever think that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit loved to sing? We're told in the book of Zechariah or Zephaniah chapter 3 that God the Father delights in us and he rejoices over us with singing. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5 when the Holy Spirit fills you, you relate to other people with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're told in Psalm 22, Hebrews 2, that Jesus sings. 
over us, with us, to the Father. That's pretty amazing. Which means if you are walking in the light as he is in the light, if you're filled with the Spirit and walking with Christ and you want to honor God, should not a song be in your heart? A new song? Even praise to our God. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. Again, basically saying the same thing. Praise Honor, reverence to God is when we praise him in song and bow before him in worship and follow him in obedience. All the believers are praising. Now why? Because of verse 24. This is victory, not defeat. In verse 2, I prayed and he didn't hear my prayer, or at least I thought he didn't. Verse 24 he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face. He has listened to his voice and his cry for help. Jesus was not rejected by the Father, even though for a brief time the Father turned his back on the Son. Jesus was welcomed by the Father into heaven and placed at the right hand of the throne. And he is seated in a position from authority of authority. It's the Father who said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. It's the Father who turned his back on him, who welcomes him and receives him up into glory. Verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I'll fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. So there's praise among believers, but it doesn't stop there. The circle widens. And this is the power of the cross. This is the effect of the gospel. This is the growing tree in which all the birds of the air one day will find refuge. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth are going to remember, and they're going to turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and Jesus rules. He rules over the nations, universal dominion. And all the rich of the earth will feast and worship, and all will go down, all who go down to the dust. Reference of death, used of Christ in the earlier part of the psalm. All who die will kneel before him and recognize his lordship. Does that sound like Philippians chapter 2? He is Lord. He is Lord. He's risen from the dead, and he is Lord. And one day every knee shall bow, and one day every tongue confess, even if it's just before they perish. They'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Revelation 11. Jesus rules. And the cross was victorious. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the taunts. Because afterward, he would embrace those redeemed, the ones he sings over and the ones he sings with to the Father. The cross will conquer the world. 
And verse 30, everyone will serve him. Did you notice the progression from verse 26? They'll seek him. Verse 27, they'll turn to him. Verse 27, they'll bow down before him. Verse 29, they'll worship. And verse 30, they'll serve. That's what happens in the heart of someone who recognizes Christ. That's what happens in the heart of someone who sees beauty in the cross. We sang it a moment ago. What wondrous beauty I see. What's beautiful about the cross? What the cross is going to redeem. What the cross is going to succeed in accomplishing. The redemption of sinners like me. And so verse 31 says, they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's you. You're in Psalm 22. Did you know that? And then the NIV sets this apart, this last little phrase, with these words, for he has done it. Something interesting about verse 31. F.B. Meyer, a Bible teacher of a bygone era, in his little commentary said, some of the ancient commentators believe the original Hebrew of this psalm, the ending of this psalm, could be translated like this. It is finished. Wow. He dies on the cross for our sin. He's victorious, and the Father accepts his sacrifice. The Father sings over the redeemed, and Jesus sings with the redeemed, and the Holy Spirit sings in the redeemed, and all the world will one day bow, and Jesus rules. And he declares, it is this is the song of the cross. Now, something interesting about the gospel, as persuasive as it can be, as powerful as the message is, you personally have to embrace it so that you will receive its benefits. In other words, just to acknowledge that there's a God and he has a son, and even to say Jesus died on the cross for sinners like me, that is not enough. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes will not perish. You must personally believe. That means to embrace, to trust, to commit yourself to him. That means you have to seek, verse 26, and turn, verse 27, and bow and worship and serve. We don't do these things to earn salvation, we do these things because we're recipients of his saving grace. But you have to believe. During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, there was a man by the name of Wilson who apparently worked in the federal post office and he stole some U.S. mail, was convicted. And in that day, if you stole mail, you would die. He was sentenced to be hung. People interceded on his behalf, thinking that perhaps the punishment was a little too great, and the president relented and issued a pardon for Mr. Wilson. The shocking thing was that Mr. Wilson said, no, I don't want it. 
Now, the lawyers didn't quite know what to do, and the federal courts and the people who administer justice, they were dumbfounded. So finally, they brought it all the way to the chief justice marshal and said, what do we do? And he listened to the argument, and he wrote an opinion, and this is what he said. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused... It is no pardon. Mr. Wilson must be hanged. Hmm. You see, the death of Jesus Christ indeed is effective, and he will accomplish what he desires to accomplish. But personally, from your perspective, if you don't embrace him as Savior, his death means nothing to you. The saving benefit is not yours. If you neglect the pardon, you must die. And the gospel says Jesus loves you so much he doesn't want you to die. And Psalm 22 says he loves you so much he's going to even be forsaken by the Father and mistreated by his enemies and crucified on a cross but exalted high to heaven and victorious over sin and giving redemption to all who believe. This is the psalm of the cross. Hallelujah for the cross. Have you believed? Heavenly Father, we've been worshiping you today in song. We've been worshiping you today in offering. We've been worshiping you today as the scripture is read and as it is studied. We've been worshiping you today around the communion table. I pray that it's real heart worship from our heart to yours. If there's someone here who has never believed in Jesus Christ, may today be the day when they say, I see for the first time that Jesus hung on that cross for me and I want him as my Savior and Lord. To that soul that is seeking you, may you be found. To that soul that cries out, May you answer their prayer. To that soul that says, deliver me, may you save them today. And take us all from this place with a renewed appreciation for God becoming a worm for us that we might live forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're dismissed.